Hello and welcome back to the Startup Survival Podcast with me, your host, Peter Harrington. In this episode, episode 8, gosh how time flies, I'm going to be looking at the subject of environmental sustainability and considering why this terribly topical and most important of issues has to be integrated into startup strategies and thinking. To help me dial up the sustain on this podcast, I'll be joined by Dr Peter Melville-Shreve, an eco-expert who has not only started and run his own environmental business, but is also an experienced engineer and seasoned academic. Hopefully you managed to catch the previous episode and hear from the dedicated and energy fueled Seb Haramillo. Choosing to scale a social enterprise based on sex education in a predominantly Catholic conservative country seems overwhelmingly ambitious, almost crazy, yet it was intriguing in its originality. Seb's obvious success should encourage all startups not to think conventionally or be middle of the road. Being versatile, hungry for change, yet recognising the importance of building trust-based relationships were subjects that all shone through once again as crucial get-better-go-further strategies. Back in 2002, and with the help of a small team, I started a printing company. We all thought just like Seb. We had invested over £200,000 and our main printing press was the most environmentally friendly on the market. The print process used zero water, recycled paper was the norm and digital technology meant artwork came into the max and completed designs advanced straight to the press. It was all go. There was no stopping at the darkroom, no need for acetate films nor production of aluminium plates and the delight of digital printing meant designs could be shared with clients instantly online. The traditional energy-sapping proofing processes were history and for our competitors. We were pioneering a print revolution. A little bit later, I'll share more about my experience in the print industry and what it's like to break new ground and persuade people to buy into ethical consumerism. But for now, let's get my special guest, Dr. Peter Melville-Shreve, onto the show. Peter is an entrepreneurial engineer with years of experience working in the startup space on large consultancy projects as well as within academia. Skilled in smart cities and Industry 4.0 applications, amongst other things, Peter also has an engineering doctorate that focuses on sustainable water management. As a lecturer at Exeter University, my namesake works closely with the Chartered Institution of Water and Environmental Management. He also has a passion for developing student entrepreneurial thinking and delivering workshops to support startups and spin-outs. Peter, welcome to the Startup Survival Podcast. Well, from one Pete to another Pete, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Pete, before we get into this podcast, can you share a bit more about your background as an engineer, entrepreneur and academic? Uh, Yes, so I'm an entrepreneur who loves to share my experiences with others. Um, I currently run a programme at the University of Exeter. Underlying that, I'm someone who loves systems thinking, and I think that's a really important part of um, exploring the environment. I have a bachelor's degree in environmental geoscience, 
a master's in urban water systems and a doctorate in sustainable water management. Well, I'm glad you're here today, Peter, since you've clearly studied related topics for many years. And you've also run your own company too, I believe. In 2015, I was just wrapping up uh, research on my doctorate and around about the time uh, the Internet of Things was just starting to take off. So I, I took the opportunity to take uh, cyber physical systems technology, wrapped it into some intellectual property uh, that came out of my thesis. Uh, and we launched a business that was controlling rainwater systems in cities. So we'd take real time weather data and make sure that we'd uh, release rainwater from tanks prior to storms, making sure that we could control flooding uh, using the technology. <laughs> Very entrepreneurial, Pete. So what got you into engineering? So I'm, a, I'm kind of a mixed engineer, and I think um, my, my grandfather was a, a more pure engineer, and I grew up um, admiring all of the things that he used to do. He, he's one of these people that um, I've got a photo of him on my wall of him watching a nuclear explosion out in the Pacific. He mapped a lot of the Fijian uh, coastline as a hydrographic surveyor. And I remember as a kid um, growing up, and uh, kind of pottering around in his basement, which was a workshop full of lathes and wonderful things. Um, he'd even built himself a thing called a spectroheliscope, which is a sun telescope. Uh, and he used to map things uh, like the moon. So in the 1960s, he was mapping the moon. He'd identified that NASA would need maps of the moon for their moonshot project. Uh, and independently from NASA, he cracked on with photographing and then hand drawing the moon. And you can currently buy uh, his his maps of the moon in a in a book online, um, but really as I spent my youth hanging out with this person, he's one of these people in the in the eighties he'd he'd built himself a uh, a word processor because he needed a word processor. In the nineties he'd modified his Volvo and uh, installed an autopilot dial on the dashboard, just like Tesla are doing these days. Um, but as a as a young as a young kid, I kind of was imbued with this uh, this vision from a. A generation gone by that you can always go out and do things if you want to support something anywhere on the planet even if it's nasa just get your get your telescope out take photos of it and send them the documents later um, so i think as a, a young person i kind of enjoyed learning from this engineer and that's what really got me into the environmental sciences uh, at the beginning of my career so do you think you have your grandfather's genes i uh, yeah I'm one, i wonder how genetic it is if it's nature or nurture but um I, I, I kind of really strongly remember his um, astronomy and things as a, as a kid and uh, this willingness to look beyond what was happening here today. So he was in his 50s and was thinking about, well, we need to, in the early 1960s, we need to be mapping the moon because it's of interest. And here we are with uh, Bezos and Musk also, um, you know, racing to be the next people to get there. Peter, you were inspired by your grandfather, and I want us to inspire listeners to be greener, more environmentally conscious with their startup thinking. To kick us off, can you say what environmental sustainability is and, and why it's such an important consideration? So I think um, thinking about sustainability, we obviously have people, planet and profit. And it's a really obvious starting point to build our value propositions around profit in order to solve pain points for businesses uh, in an economic sense. But actually, if we start to model things using a triple bottom line approach, so the sustainability approach of people, planet and profit, um, environment, social and economic, uh, then we're able to identify things that other businesses might not be exploring. So a client might have societal or environmental needs um, that as a, as a business startup, you can go and explore and solve. They might have pain points in that space. 
And um, more often than not, businesses are seeking to make a profit and might be missing these opportunities. For several years, Pete, businesses of all sizes have been advised to improve their green credentials by using less energy, recycling resources, managing waste and being more conscious about travelling in cars and planes, etc. What other things should or could businesses be doing? I think within within a business, obviously, as you form, there's, um, there's standards that you can attain, like ISO standards, in order to uh, demonstrate that your business is meeting environmental standards, reducing its carbon footprint, um, having a sustainable travel policy and things like that. But from the kind of startup perspective, I like the idea um, that it's possible to identify problems within the companies that you're you're offering to. They might have a corporate or social responsibility policy available on their website. And if you have a good trawl through there, it might be offering targets for the future about decarbonisation uh, or uh, microplastics, any of these large environmental problems of the day. And from a kind of a startup perspective, if you're if you're in an ideation phase and still exploring what the right startup is for you, then these represent problems that you know billions of pounds are going to be spent on in the future, uh, and no one has solutions to. So I think from a startup perspective, there's lots of good environmental startups that are beginning to emerge to address these big challenges of the day. Yeah, you you mentioned carbon footprint, Pete, a term often used but not necessarily explained. Can you share what a carbon footprint is and how it's measured? Okay, so the carbon footprint of your business is involved with the scope of everything that your business does. So uh, if we take uh, drawing a pint of water from the from the kitchen sink, we might not think that buried behind there is a high carbon footprint, but that water's had to be extracted from the ground with a pump, treated using chemicals that have been shipped here from Turkey, uh, and then it's been pumped across your house, you put it in your glass, uh, you've added an ice cube, so you've used some electricity to freeze the ice. And all of these things have a, an energy cost and associated with the energy cost is a carbon footprint. Now, as we move towards decarbonizing our grid, uh, electrical energy is increasingly becoming uh, low. Uh, the, the carbon footprint is being reduced within the electrical energy that we consume. Um, but it, essentially, anything and everything that we do has a carbon footprint embedded within it. And can a business measure its own carbon footprint? So there's some really useful calculators available on websites such as the Carbon Trust uh, and uh, dropping on there and having a look at uh, how your uh, how the decisions you make on a day to day basis influence your carbon footprint mean that you're able to help advise your staff and make good plans within your policies to reduce your overall carbon footprint. Uh-huh. Thanks, Pete. So operationally, how can startups work to support the environment? I think there's two ways that startups can have really positive environmental benefit. There's an obvious way, which is to focus on a product or service, which is an environmentally focused offer. But for all of those other businesses out there, which is the majority of them, we can also make sure that we we bring environmental uh, good practices into our day-to-day operations. So big businesses always make sure they have good policies in place around environmental standards. But it's really easy from day one as a startup to make sure that we tick off simple things like a good transport policy, making sure that people are using bikes and trains, not cars and planes, uh, making sure that we've got a good waste management policy. Perhaps do we really need to have a paper printer in the office? Do we need to be posting letters out on a day to day basis? All of the things that seem um, seem like they might be wasteful can really be drilled out of the business on day one. Uh, And by using digital resources, we tend to be able to save on our, our waste footprint as well as other things. Got it. Now, you're a water specialist, Pete. What advice would you offer startups seeking a greener use of this 
invaluable resource? Most people don't tend to think about the, the broader environmental footprint behind our water usage. So a typical person in the UK will use around about 150 litres of water per day uh, at, at a household. Uh, and um, although, although we'll only drink two litres of water, so the water footprint of that has been pumped across our city. And if you think about it for a minute, once we've flushed it, it's going to be pumped to a wastewater treatment works where we're going to put a load more energy into it to treat it and clean it before we drop it back off into the environment. Um, so when we're looking at things like water, the footprint in terms of energy costs is, is, is both within our household where we might heat it up and we'll, we'll expend energy on warming it up for our bath, but it's also outside of our household. And this is back on the, the systems thinking approach. So we need to think about things as a holistic system when we're looking at things from an environmental perspective. And we need to acknowledge that anything we do in our business will have a, a knock on. It, it's this butterfly effect uh, concept, isn't it? Where a small impact somewhere will flow through. And what we need to do from my perspective when we're starting a business is make sure that we've thought about the overall system in which we're operating. So we might find early doors in our business that there's some negative uh, environmental activity associated with what we're doing. What we need to do is address that before we scale. And if we don't address that before we scale, then further down the line, we're gonna have built a business that's got an environmentally weak basis. Uh, and uh, no doubt in the years ahead, we'll bump into challenges related to environmental legislation. Yeah, that's, that's very good advice. What might appear to be tiny irrelevant issues when starting up can become colossal challenges down the road as the business grows or scales. Peter, you mentioned the Carbon Trust earlier. Are there any other sources of information or websites that startups can refer to when designing their, their business model? So I think two things. I, I, I like the idea that the things like the Energy Saving Trust are a good place to get resources, help us make sure that we understand where we're using energy uh, within our business or our day-to-day -day lives. Um, other than that, I think a key element is to understand where we can access opportunities from the environmental sector. So websites um, driven by governments will provide legislation around environmental opportunities, but they're almost impossible to decipher uh, long legal documents that set out the, the vision for decarbonisation in the next 10 or 20 years. So looking through those is not going to help you as a business startup identify what the shape of the future will look like. It's too complicated. What we really need to do is if we can sign up to something like a, a tender portal that is offering environmental projects, then that tender portal will give us a nudge the next time something is available in our sphere and we'll uh, we'll receive a, a you know an, e an email of a tuesday morning that will help us uh, find an opportunity to bid for some work in in a space that fits our business so far pete we've talked about the more obvious ways in which businesses impact the environment are there any hidden aspects to our work life where we might inadvertently be increasing our carbon footprint the carbon footprint of our day-to-day -day lives is quite interesting these days. Now we spend a lot of time uh, on a screen. So we will have seen um, in recent press reports that Bitcoin mining is now reaching uh, the equivalent of the energy footprint of the entirety of Argentina. Um, but we, on a day-to-day -day basis, are firing off emails left, right and centre, WhatsApping gifts to each other, uh, and perhaps streaming content uh, eight hours a day, ten hours a day. Uh, and each one of those things has got a carbon footprint because there's an energy cost at the server that's that's operating that. That server might be 
uh, up in Iceland or wherever it might be, but someone is burning uh, some kind of fossil fuel most of the time in order to generate the electricity to run the systems behind our, our internet and our day-to-day -day streaming activities. Back in the mid-noughties, we were being taught on the energy module on my course that China was building a, a new coal-fired power station once a week for 544 weeks. To put that in context, all of those are still operational. And in the UK, we currently have three coal-fired power stations operational. So we've shifted our energy use in the UK from around about a third of our energy use in the mid-noughties was running on coal, and it's really depleting down to nearly nothing. So globally, there's a, a lot of a long way to go to see uh, other nations uh, join this kind of decarbonisation journey. Um, but we've seen in the last few days, uh, even uh, over in the USA, President Biden's released a new target to reduce their carbon emissions by 50%, a really, a really uh, a positive target. And if you think about the impact of that, that will shake down through all of the legal systems and the procurement systems across the entirety of the United States. And we're going to now see a green boom across both the USA and uh, other nations that are following this move. I think it'll be a real boost for the global economy as businesses twist and change shape towards that. Since Peter mentioned the issue, it is worth referencing President Biden's recent and historic speech in April 2021, where he pledged to reduce US greenhouse gas emissions by at least 50% by 2030. To put that in context, this revised target more than doubles the country's previous commitment under the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Now, if you've only occasionally tuned into US and Trump politics over the last five years, you'll be aware there are millions of Americans who fundamentally disagree with climate change and prioritising expenditure to improve the planet's health. For many citizens, the American economy should be the number one issue. Well, whatever your view on this matter, let's look at this point through a startup lens. And to do this, let me take you back to that printing business I mentioned earlier. I was company chair for 15 years, and in that time, I regularly witnessed an ongoing tension and competition between the issues of environmental sustainability and making money. As a print supplier, we had the best green credentials in the city of Nottingham and probably the wider region. But this came at a cost, because having the latest eco-friendly technology meant we typically struggled to be the cheapest printer. Sadly, many customer decisions were driven by price. Even if our quote was only fractionally more expensive than a competitor, our environment-first ethos was often not enough to persuade people that we were the right choice. So, a word of caution when considering sales forecasts. Don't be surprised when people in business, people who may work to make a profit or must stick to a budget, prioritise money over your environmental credentials. Thankfully, demonstrating green credentials and an eco-conscience has become far more important over recent years. By way of example, big-ticket investors are developing a much greater interest and appetite for organisations that prioritise environmental social governance, or ESG for short. According to the Global Sustainable Investment Alliance, investments that took account of organisations' ESG grew to more than $30 trillion in 2018. More significantly is the fact investor monies have grown again since then. And according to the Morningstar Direct, 
ESG funds have performed extremely well throughout this pandemic. In short, the pandemic, it seems, has helped to focus investor interest and action on organisations that demonstrate clear and sound environmental sustainability initiatives and policies. So, as mentioned earlier, whatever your business, if you are looking to scale and attract investors, ensure your ESG house is in good order. Investors may like profits, but investors are increasingly recognising that profits without a planet have little meaning at all. Now, you may be listening to this podcast because your startup offers or is seeking to offer environmental sustainable services. With this in mind, and knowing more and more opportunities are appearing in this space, I wanted to ask Peter whether he could offer any tips or advice as to how you might grow your venture. If you're an uh, environmentally focused startup, or even if you're an environmentally focused person who'd like to, to begin a startup, um, then you can do worse than to look at programs like uh, BP's sort of startup studio program, I believe it's called the launch program. And you know, com- companies like British Petroleum are gonna have to shift in the next, next couple of decades from being um, you know, a couple of hundred billion pound revenue businesses dealing with fossil fuels, and they're going to have to shift across to this uh, decarbonized uh, economy on a global basis. So if you're a startup, you can scratch your head and think to yourself, well, what could I build that I could exit to BP in five years time? And they've got whole startup studio with 40 people sitting in it, busy thinking about those things from an internal perspective. But if you're leaner and more agile and coming with an environmentally focused idea, organizations like BP are buying up wind turbines all over the planet. Uh, and other kind of novel electric uh, electrical storage systems. So there's a lot of opportunity there if you took someone like BP, but you could take any large business that's going to need to decarbonize and change shape. They're going to be looking for startups to get hold of that they can scale. So visiting corporate websites like BP is a source of ideas and potential revenue. Do you have any advice, Pete, as to what startups should look for on these sites? Looking through their corporate social responsibility policy documents is key uh, and also just their commitments. So, um, you know, British Petroleum shifted from from their that that was their brand in the uh, early noughties. They shifted onto a new brand of Beyond Petroleum. So it's telling you where they want to be in, in 20 years time. They want to be still operational. They don't want to lose all of their customers, but they need to move to a place uh, where they're operating differently. And one last question on this. Is there any information source you might suggest people look out for? Uh, Well, it's possible to go and find accelerators such as Google's new Climate Change Accelerator, where they're obviously looking to uh, achieve these kind of people, planet profit uh, businesses and and nurture them from from day one in their programmes. Peter, you've mentioned BP and Google. Can businesses working in the environmental space also take advantage of publicly shared tenders and plans for future work? Let me give you an example from uh, when I was working in engineering consultancy. So I I guess one cold morning I I arrived at my desk and uh, wound up the email. um, And uh, around about sort of nine in the morning, I will have received an email. And it, it was from something that I'd done months earlier. Uh, and I'd, I'd been thinking to myself, I want to work on more environmental projects. I'm working in an engineering business, but I want to focus on environmental sector projects. So I'd, I'd signed up to a tender portal that focused on these environmental opportunities and then completely forgotten about it. So uh, here I am months later. And it, that morning, DEFRA, so the, the uh, environmental uh, department in the UK, had released £5 million worth of flood management funding. 
to local authorities across the UK to do a new thing, which was referred to as property level resilience. So it's where you take a house and you try and prevent the house from flooding rather than take a river and try and prevent it from flooding out of the river. So you let the river out of the banks and you try and stop the house from getting damaged by the river when it gets there. And we can achieve that by doing things like blocking up the air vents or putting a barrier in front of the front door. But when this funding came out, it was a completely new sector. It was the first time DEFRA had ever funded this. Uh, so I, I will have taken this straight downstairs to the director and said to him, uh, excuse me, boss, we've got an opportunity here. Uh, new sector, it, it arrived around about three minutes ago. Why don't we go and be the people that are the leaders in this space? And I pretty much remember just receiving a kind of a nod of, um, yes, you know, good luck with that kind of nod. Um, anyway, off I, off I went. So by lunchtime, I'd found the 25 projects that had funding. And by the afternoon, I'd managed to make enough phone calls to get hold of a few of these officers. And by the next day, I'd had my first meeting. And by the end of the, the next month, we'd received our first purchase order for delivering the surveys that were required to get these projects underway. So just by keeping an eye on the opportunity space, this new legislation driving new opportunities, we were able to open up a whole new business sector. A year later, I was promoted. We built a team of three or four people. And, and uh, within a couple of years, we'd, we'd worked for probably five or six councils around the UK. Uh, and protected hundreds of hundreds of property from flooding. Um, but it was that opportunity space where I knew at the time there were no experts because it was the first morning in the history of time when those projects were being released. So it was a great opportunity as a, as a kind of a young engineer to jump in and say, I know our organization will be as well-placed as anyone else to deliver this. Let's, uh, let's go and attack this. And then it's, it's just kind of down to a classic business development mindset of you need to pick up the phone, and uh, convert those leads into opportunities. In the fast moving world of environmental sustainability, it clearly pays to be enterprising and entrepreneurial, particularly when you are in the early startup phase and you don't have a network of eyes and ears to support your business development work. You need to be looking for tenders, checking research, and as Pete said earlier, signing up to newsletters. So how does Pete view the future for startups working in this sector? I definitely think that being an entrepreneur in the environmental sector is a great place to be in the next decade. Uh, there's going to be new opportunities like nowhere else. And I really do see a kind of a green environmental revolution uh, across, across Europe and the US in, and probably more globally. Uh, and any opportunity to... Uh, Focus your business proposition towards these environmental targets means that on a day-to-day -day basis, you'll feel warm inside because you know you're doing something purposeful that your grandkids will be proud of. Um, but also, you'll be able to pick up these new opportunities and you'll be, if you're the first person arriving in the room and you're 20 years old and you feel like everyone else there has more experience, if it's a brand new sector that no one else has worked in, it's an even playing field uh, and uh, you can get your elbows out and go and win the project. It's great to hear your enthusiasm, Peter. And if I may, I have one final question for you. In your opinion, is there any one area within the environmental sustainability field that you think offers greatest opportunity? I think in the next five years, there's a real opportunity for uh, telemetry, which would be sensing systems. So as we've seen, uh, cyber physical systems, so these are sort of microcomputers that you can put out there into the environment. We've seen them uh, come down in cost. They're now down to kind of a handful of dollars rather than hundreds of dollars and the sensors that go with them can be down uh, you know as cheap as pennies now so we, we're talking for like a temperature sensor might be less than a pound to buy a temperature sensor that plugs into one of these microcomputers 
So it means that for the first time ever, we can really move towards a smart city concept where we can install environmental sensing at every lamppost, um, or we can install environmental sensing within every vehicle. Uh, and then we move to the next opportunity, which is the data. So the data flowing off these assets is being stored by the utility companies uh, and uh, government providers, Google, for example, or a, a car manufacturer will be gathering all of this data. And we're moving to a point now where car manufacturers have uh, data product managers. So I flew out two years ago to Michigan, uh, Detroit, uh, Motor City, if you will. Uh, and I went to go and visit some scientists in a lab there. And they happened to be working on uh, Internet of Things technologies to manage stormwater, uh, a space that I was working on at the time. The lab next door was the Ford Autonomous Vehicle Lab. And the Ford Autonomous Vehicle Lab happened to be streaming real-time data relating to their windscreen wipers. So the two labs sat down, uh, presumably over a beer and a pizza one evening, and the first lab realized that the Ford cars driving around their city were acting as rain gauges and that they could stream real-time rain gauge data from these vehicles driving through the city. And they could use that real-time rain gauge data in order to best operate and optimize the stormwater infrastructure in the city. And so this is a crashing of two different spaces together, but it shows how uh, really there's a, a massive opportunity to dig through the data that's being gathered by these sensing systems uh, and or provide a startup or an analytics startup that can provide environmental benefit from data that big businesses are collecting. Pete, it's been a pleasure and an intriguing lesson for me. Thank you so much for lending us your insight, wisdom and time. But before you leave us, is there any final point you would like to make? I think I need to add my thanks. I've been a big, big fan of the podcast since I first listened to it uh, at the beginning of last year and I've enjoyed everything so far. Uh, the only thing I wanted to add is, is that this uh, thinking like an environmental scientist is all about systems thinking. And if anyone wanted to go away and pick up a great book on that, um, then just punch in the words Lovelock, James Lovelock into Google and pick up his Gaia Hypothesis book um, because everything on the planet is interrelated. Uh, and if we think in that systems approach, then hopefully we can solve problems at a strategic level uh, for our, our businesses and our clients. Given Dr. Peter Melville Shreve's expertise, I think it's highly appropriate to make his suggestion the book recommendation for this episode. If you didn't catch it, Peter suggested you buy the book Gaia, that's G-A-I-A, -A, by Dr. James Lovelock. I'm yet to read the text myself, but after only a little bit of research, I've discovered Google is awash with praise for this highly published author, scientist and centurion. James Lovelock is indeed 101. Hopefully this Get Better, Go Further podcast has shone a green light and given you a green light to help you embed environmentally sound practices into your startup thinking. But before the fade buttons are pressed and we look ahead to the next show, let me recognise our expert guest. Peter, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and understanding of a complex but oh so important subject. I am sure many people will be taking advantage of your ideas, tips and advice. Sharing your time and expertise on the Startup Survival podcast is really appreciated. And thank you to Duncan, my producer, Chris for your research and another grateful nod to the music sponsors Sea Jam Moths. Finally, without the support of LJ at the London School of Economics, as well as the SimVenture team who allow me time out to do this, 
the podcast would not be possible. In the next episode, to be published on Thursday the 20th of May, I'll be examining how you as a startup can become a better networker, getting out of the building, getting out of your comfort zone and knowing what to say, when to say it and how to read other people's behaviour will all be covered in episode nine. Until then, your podcast feedback is not just welcomed, it's needed. Share what you really like and let me know the truth about what needs to be improved. And of course, whatever your listening channel of preference, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Until next time, my name's Peter Harrington and this has been your Startup Survival Podcast. Go well, stay safe and thank you. Thank you.